Hello, and welcome to Writing the Coast. I'm your host, Megan Cole, and Writing the Coast is the official podcast of the BC and Yukon Book Prizes. This is your destination for conversations with the finalists of the BC and Yukon Book Prizes, as well as interviews with book lovers from across the province and territory. My guest for this episode is Claudia Cornwall, and Claudia is going to introduce herself. So I'm Claudia Cornwall. I'm a a writer. I've been a writer for many years. I've written seven books, and I'm also the author of many magazine articles. I also teach nonfiction writing at Simon Fraser in the Writer's Studio, both of which the writing and teaching I find very gratifying. Before Claudia and I dug into talking about her book, I asked her what I've been asking other finalists. If she could be a character in any novel, who she would be. And here's what she said. You know, I've always had a fondness for Toad in The Wind in the Willows. So I don't know that I really want to, uh, you know, have a look like a toad. But uh, there's something about that character that has always appealed to me. And uh, so I I think I go with that. (laughs) I spoke to Claudia as BC settled into its multi-day heat wave in late June. That was before Lytton was destroyed by a forest fire and before many other fires erupted, threatening communities and forests around the province. Where I live on the territory of the Klaman Nation, there was smoke from a forest fire burning up Powell Lake. But the other thing that Claudia writes about in her book, British Columbia in Flames, Stories from a Blazing Summer, is the importance of old growth forests in BC. British Columbia in Flames is a finalist for the 2021 Roderick Haig Brown Regional Prize. Claudia starts our conversation by reading from her book. So this is from my book, uh, British Columbia in Flames, Stories from a Blazing Summer, and it's from chapter one. Uh, We can't go south, we can't go north. So I'm going to read a little bit from this and then another excerpt from something that's later on in the book. So Friday, July the 7th, the caribou. Have you heard about the fires? Sandra McLeod asked, calling us on our hands-free car phone as we drove west on Highway 24. Heard about them? We just saw one at Little Ford, I said. A thick column of smoke north of the highway. Gordon took a picture of it a few minutes ago. Sandra was worried about Jane Fisher, her aunt, who was on the trip with us. We were heading to our cabin on Sheridan Lake, about 490 kilometers north of Vancouver. Jane was an old friend of Gordon's mother. They originally bought the property together and we continued to share the use of it. Despite being 91 years old and having poor vision, Jane was always game to visit. But sometimes I think Sandra feels we're a bit too adventurous for her. We were nearing the end of a five and a half hour drive on our annual night migration north like the birds that preceded us, we were not easily diverted from our purpose. Sandra talked about a blaze at Ashcroft, how it closed Highway 97, and also about another fire near 100 Mile House. That's 40 kilometers away from the lake. We'll be fine, I said. Be safe, Sandra urged. We'll phone when we arrive, and I'll keep top of, on top of things by watching the internet, I assured her. A few minutes later, our son Tom called. He is rarely anxious about anything. Have you heard about the fires, he asked. Sandra just called, I told him. One fire information officer said people were calling the fires in faster than he could write them down, Tom reported. Well, there are no fires here, I said, looking out at a peaceful grove of poplar and spruce and a hayfield where harvesting and baling had already begun. We'll keep you posted. Though I sounded fairly calm on the phone, the calls were rattling me. 
When we get to three corners, we should gas up, I suggested to my husband, Gordon. At the Esso station, it was clear that we were not the only people to have the same idea. Cars and trucks were lined up at every pump. We pulled up to one and were third in the queue. The fellow at the head of the line was filling not only his pickup, but a collection of jerry cans as well. I sighed with impatience. Gordon backed out and swung the car around to another pump. We were still second in line. The driver in front of us must have a large gas tank, I thought. She seemed to be taking forever. I began to wonder whether the unusual demand would deplete the station's fuel supplies before we could buy any. But the woman at the pump finally finished and we filled up. We trundled along the dirt road into the resort at the southwest end of Sheridan Lake. We parked the car and picked up our boat. Unusually, I looked down the lake with apprehension. It was a bit smoky, probably because of the fire at 100 Mile. We loaded the boat, and although it was sometimes temperamental, it merciless, merciful, merciful, mercifully started without any trouble. 15 minutes later, we were at our own dock. As I walked up the path to the cottage, I saw blowdown, or what foresters called wind throw. The trees were toppled in a storm that had ripped through the BC interior at the end of May. It hit our region, the Interlakes area, especially hard. The forest around us had suffered. The gusts, which had reached 90 kilometers per hour, had snapped the trunks of even 100-year-old trees and uprooted others. The way to our neighbor's cottage was impassable. Trees were down on either side of the boathouse and immediately behind the cabin. Further back, a tangle of massive trunks was scattered in the forest like a giant's game of pickup sticks. Some of the downed trees had been standing dead, pines still erect, although already killed by the beetle infestation that had come through a few years earlier. But many seemed perfectly healthy. I had never seen carnage like this before. The lake was always a place of refuge. While there, we returned to an earlier and somewhat simpler lifestyle. We go to the lake to get away from problems. To have them turning up at our doorstep made me sad. We had the pine beetle epidemic and then the blowdown. Not only were these events destructive in themselves, but they sowed the seeds for future destruction by providing a source of ready fuel. Would we see a fire now, a trifecta of harms? So that was July the 7th. And on July the 8th, we stayed to kind of suss out the situation a little more. Uh, and decided we should go because the highways around us were closing down. So we couldn't go north uh, on Highway 97 because of the fire at 100 Mile House. We couldn't go south on Highway 97 because of the fires at Ashcroft and Cache Creek. And we could go east, but there was a fire as we had seen at Lil Fort and we didn't know if that highway would stay open. So we felt a little bit uh, claustrophobic and we thought it was dangerous to stay and we left. We went home and we began watching the progress of the fires on the internet and on the television, on the news and so forth. Um, and then I began to feel like a story was coming on. It's a bit like being pregnant. Sometimes a woman knows she's pregnant even though you know the test hasn't shown anything, but she knows it. And that's how I felt. I felt pregnant with story. And I thought this was a great story to tell. It was a saga about British Columbia. And, um, and I wanted to tell it from all kinds of points of view, from the point of view of firefighters, uh, police chiefs, store owners, ranchers, cottagers, just everybody who had a different uh, view of things. And so I began collecting these stories and I was really struck by how generous people were, how resourceful they were, um, how re people really stepped up to the plate to, to help their neighbors 
And um, all of that, I think, was part of why we came through the fires as well as we did. One of the people that I wanted to mention, um, his name is uh, Ryan Lake. And he was an interesting, he was certainly, I think, almost an emblem of, of what the, the kind of person who came through the fire and, and uh, I guess the best of British Columbia. So Ryan is 70 years old. He lives in Clinton and he's an amputee. Uh, he, so he has a prosthesis and that's how he gets around. Uh, and he decided despite these handicaps that uh, when the fires came, he would stay and defend his place. And so he set up, and he had an elaborate system of sprinklers that he set up and hoses, and he had to move them around to cover the whole property. Uh, and he, this was a lot of work and it was like night and day. And um, he was working so hard that the, his stump got uh, kind of bruised and sore and he couldn't put the prosthesis on anymore. So he was doing it on crutches. And so that's even riskier and his property is on a bit of a slope. And so I'll just read you what happened. No wonder at one point in the middle of the night while repositioning a hose, Brian tripped over something. I'm lying on my back, looking at the sky. He noticed the moon and thought, oh, fire, just take me. Then he had another thought. If I lie here any longer, somebody is going to look out their window. The girl's up at the corner. Their place overlooks ours. They'll look down and panic. They'll think I've had a heart attack or something. So I got up and dragged, uh, so I got myself up and carried on dragging hoses around on crutches. And I thought, you know, there's the there's the resourceful guy, and um, so and actually he suffered. He had there were long term he had long term effects from the fires. He he developed um, COPD as a result of being all the smoke exposure. So the effects of the fires are not just what happened in 2017, but obviously much much longer term. And um, he's still suffering from from the effects of what he endured, uh, but he did so very bravely and resourcefully and and so on. So I, I think he was a, a great example of, of the kind of person who, who, who uh, fought the fires and, and uh, kept them at bay. So, um, and there are many more stories <laughs> like that. As we were talking uh, before we started recording, we were talking about how you're in the caribou right now and it's so hot. And it, the fact that we're doing this interview today seems like I don't I don't know serendipity might be mm. the wrong word or or something but you said how it felt hot when you were there in 2017 but it feels hotter now how are you feeling you know having written this book and sitting where you are now with the information that you have having done that book how are you feeling today well, I'm I'm nervous. Um, you know, one of the things that we had a very wet spring and a very wet winter, lots of snow. So when you look out, the the grass is green. It's not dry yet. Um, so that's a good thing. And so far, there haven't been any big fires, but uh, we're expecting a thunderstorm uh, tomorrow, and it could start. You know, that's what you need the spark. We haven't had a lot of wind. That was something else we had a lot of in 2017. Lots and lots of wind and carried the fires long distances. So you haven't had that yet, but um, it's it's a bit nerve wracking. I, you know, the swimming is nice, but <laughs> it's a bit nerve wracking. 
<laughs> How do other folks seem with with There's this not heat? many people up here. I'm expecting more people will arrive for the, you know, July 1st weekend. But um, you see the odd person, you know, in a boat and, and uh, going by. Um, don't think many people are fishing. I think the fish are not biting. They're way down low, as low as they can get. Uh, but you do see some water skiers and a few people skidding about. But um, yeah, I would I would think everyone's a little bit on edge. You just don't know, and and it, you know it's so hot. I'm, I think once we get over that hump, I'm just waiting for us to, you know, start start on the downside of this heat wave. Yeah, <laughs> but it's it's putting our forests in great in great hazard. I mean, you know, that's for sure. <laughs> yeah. Well, and you also mention in in the end of the book, not to give away the ending, but you talk about the importance of our forests in BC and BC and mm. old growth as well, which is also, of course, a conversation that's that's happening right now about what mm-hmm. we do with our old growth and growth and how we protect them. And um, having done that research for the book, what are your thoughts looking on, at the conversation now? Well, I think that we really need to protect the old growth forests. Um, they hold a lot of carbon. Uh, they also pull down a lot of carbon. Sometimes people think that, you know, you have a big tree like that. It's done what it can to pull down carbon, but they actually pull down a lot of carbon. And, you know, the, the old ones do pull down a lot of carbon out of the atmosphere. And sm- smaller trees, like when you plant a tree, they aren't going to be pulling down any significant amount of carbon for 30 years. So um, we should not be getting rid of our old growth forests. I mean, they are our bulwark against climate change and it's what our province can contribute to the world. And in 1990, we, we had our forests were in such good shape that we were actually compensating. We completely compensated for our fuel emissions, like the carbon that we were emitting through industry, through transportation. The forest was absorbing all of that. But that is no longer the case. And of course, the forests have become very endangered. And when they go up in smoke, there's a fantastic amount of carbon that goes with them. So, I mean, it's just kind of one of those negative feedback loops that keeps having worse and worse effects. But I think we definitely need to keep keep our old growth forests and you know my heart goes out to those people in Fairy Creek right now <laughs> trying to you know trying to save what they can I think um, I think you know and John Horgan promised he would protect old growth and I don't know what happened to his promise but I, I'm very disappointed about that yeah me too um in your uh, as you were leading into your second excerpt you you mentioned how you, I loved your uh, your metaphor of being pregnant with story I thought that was so mm. fantastic because I've felt that myself as as a journalist but um I wondered if like how that happened for you were you as you became kind of pregnant with the story did you start collecting those stories immediately or or did some time pass uh, after the fire when you started kind of putting things together I started getting ideas for people that I would want to talk to. I didn't necessarily do all the interviews, but I was, you know, following what happened. I made lists of who, you know, who I might contact. And I started phoning around. And sometimes people that I spoke to were people who were in the news or had been interviewed, uh, you know, on television or something. Some people like 
Ryan Lake was not. <laughs> um, so sometimes people would tell me, uh, you know, I got interesting stories that way where people would say, oh, I think you should talk to so-and-so. He's got an interesting story or she's got an interesting story. And um, or they would, you know, make a stray comment, which would make my ears perk up. Uh, there was one man that I interviewed. Uh, he was up in Risky Creek. And he told me, he said, he was showing me uh, pictures that he had taken while he was fighting the fires. And he was really a, a sort of a, a very old, older gentleman, a very, very much a sort of old school caribou type. And so he was showing me pictures of where he'd been and fighting the fires and so on. He'd been on contract with the BC Wildfire Service with his equipment. And he pointed out, he pointed out in one picture, he said, see that woman there? She, there was a woman dragging a hose. She said, he said, she was so brave. She went straight into that fire and she worked at saving that house. And she was just terrific. And he was on and on about how, how wonderful she was. And I thought, oh, there's a story, right? Because a lot of the firefighting stories are about men. And I thought, oh, if I could get a young woman to tell a firefighting story, that would be great. And so I, I asked him, he said, well, I I don't I think he remembered her name uh, and uh, but that was his first her first name he said her name was Samantha and she worked for my son uh, on contract um, and so you might be able to get some contact information um, for her through my son so I talked to his son and he said oh yeah yeah I remember Samantha <laughs> and so and then I got her contact information and I followed up it took a while though because I probably didn't talk to her until maybe September and October where the fires had, by then they had kind of subsided. They had substantially subsided in September. So yeah, so it's interesting how you kind of find stories. And she was great. She was, um, she had not only been fighting fires at Risky Creek, but also Williams Lake. Uh, and that was one of the really interesting ones. She was in, some people think that, um, you know, what, what saved Williams Lake was a lucky shift of wind. Uh, but there are other people who say, oh, no, no, it was this crew on top of Slater Mountain that stopped the fire from going over the mountain and into the city and into the log yards, which are at the, you know, at the north end. And if they had gone up, then everything would have gone up. And so she was in the crews that helped us prevent the fire from going over the mountain. So she had a great story to tell. And um, yeah, she actually, she'd gone to school with my kids in uh, at Hansworth in North Vancouver, you know, but it was, it, so she was um, not a local person. She had just been, she was a forester. And when there was no work for foresters, her boss offered her, uh, he said, well, I could put you on a fire crew. Do you want to do that? She said, oh, sure. She'd had some very preliminary training or basic training in firefighting. Um, and, but you know, she thought this was a great adventure and it certainly, she was at the thick of it. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. There are so many, I mean, there's so many stories. You mentioned that one and, and Ryan Lake, of course. And as you were talking about these women too, who are there fighting, I thought of the woman who is uh, driving all the animals around and collecting the animals. And, you know, I, I think the thing that really came clear to me is when we hear about these incidents and we hear about them so much in BC over the last 10 years or more that um, sometimes we lose, lose perspective of what actually happens on the ground because we mm -hmm. don't hear those real personal stories. Oh yeah, there were so many, uh, you know, and people were so generous. They were, you know, they would help their neighbors. They would help people that they didn't even know. They would take them in. They would let them sleep there. Um, yeah, that's the, you know, I think that's certainly, you know, certainly true. And, 
And uh, the story about, yeah, the, the story of the saving of the horses was, was amazing. And it all kind of happened over the internet. Uh, there was a, Lana Shields was the woman that, that you mentioned. And she realized she was at Williams Lake and she worked in the, at the Stampede grounds. She was the kind of caretaker for the grounds. And she realized that horses were going to need a place to stay and people didn't always have a place to put them. And so she asked the people who um, operated the Stampede grounds whether you know she could bring horses in and they said oh sure go for it and so she posted on Facebook that that people who had horses that needed uh, a place to stay could stay at the stampede grounds and suddenly they all sorts of people started coming and not only did people want to bring their horses in like sometimes they had no transport um, they didn't have those trucks those special you know horse drawing vehicles and so then she would say well does anybody have a vehicle that could help and so this was all transpired on Facebook it was uh, just amazing and you know she saved she probably saved over 300 horses um, because uh, I mean there were you know and they came and they went and then eventually Williams Lake was evacuated and well she knew that Williams Lake was probably going to be evacuated so they started moving the horses up to Prince George where it was a little bit safer and she found a place where they could stay uh, up in Prince and again all by all volunteer labor that you know people would volunteer to take horses and the whole complexity of it you know she just had this little notebook she showed me and it had the horse's name and a few details about it and um, there was no computer or anything like that and you know making sure that the horse was got to Prince George was taken care of and then met up with the owner later. I thought that was amazing. So no horses were lost. Nobody, nobody took the wrong horse. That's another thing people worry about, you know, thieves <laughs> saying, oh yeah, that's my horse, you know. So nothing, none of that happened. It was all very well orchestrated and all just kind of impromptu. I mean, she didn't plan this ahead of time. She just kind of got into it and suddenly figured out how to do it. So it was amazing. Yeah. Yeah. I thought like what really... I thought about, I've been thinking about today, it's been, I guess, a week or so since I finished the book, but I, I've watched all those kind of dystopian TV shows like many mm. of us have. And I think sometimes they they try to suggest like the worst in humanity, mm. like that mm -hmm. we're all just going to be at each other's throats and it's mm -hmm. like, a, a, you know, we're all just fighting it out in the end. But it seems like in your book, when it came down to it and, and people were in that position, it wasn't like that at all. no. No, it wasn't. Oh, this might, I don't know if the caribou is different, you know, people here like are in smaller communities, they know their neighbors, they're used to helping them out. I mean, people are a bit isolated sometimes. And, you know, it, you can't just phone up someone to help you like you can't phone a plumber or whatever, you might have to go over and get your neighbor to help you with something. So people are used to working in community. And um, I don't know if that's it. But they certainly there was the, the people were at their best. Um, they were very kind, they were thoughtful, they, yeah, it is a, a kind of, it isn't this dystopian vision, and I think that could happen in a city too, I mean, in a bigger city, but people were, were very, very thoughtful, I mean, they'd put up people to stay, you know, they'd say, yeah, you can stay at my place, and when people didn't have a place to stay, and, and there was huge effort by volunteers, like many people volunteered at evacuation centers in all kinds of capacities to look after, help people get resettled, and people looked after animals, I mean, there were you know, people would have to evacuate and leave their pets behind. And the firefighters not only fought fires, but some of the volunteer firefighters turned out to, you know, they ended up going around and, and feeding all these 
animals that had been left behind, you know, and yeah, so, so it was amazing. It was really, it was really terrific, I thought, yeah. Yeah, it seems like a less, if we can learn lessons from that, I'm sure there's many lessons to learn, but that's really seemed to be one for me that, you know, when it comes down to it, we can be there for for each other and mm-hmm. put differences aside and, and just take care of, of mm-hmm. what needs to be taken care of. Yeah, and of course, it was great at that time. I mean, we've just been through COVID where, you know, the person, the other person is your enemy, kind of like you always have to be suspicious that they give you some dread disease and, you know, no hugging or anything like that. And that's one of the things in the fires people did. They were very freely, you know, hugging one another. And, and uh, you know, I was talking to uh, Krista Veras, who ran the 70 mile grocery store. And she said, you know, people would come in and they'd be really distraught and, and she'd hug them. I mean, it was also, you know, they had to be evacuated in the middle of the night around there and they're, you know, leaving in the dark and it's all pretty scary and there's fires and and it's smoke everywhere. And so they came into her store kind of, I don't know, pretty disoriented and everything. And she would give them a hug and everybody would feel better. But, you know, in COVID, you couldn't do that. <laughs> it depends what the disaster is. But I think um, being primates in a situation where we can hug one another, we do better. Yeah. <laughs> did you have too many stories? Did you have to to whittle it down or or did you really focus when you went out and looked for them? Well, I think I had, I don't know that I had too many stories. I mean, I kind of, I, I was looking for a rep, you know, a wide representation. I wanted to have First Nations people. So I wanted to have, a, you know, some stories from women. Um, and so when I got them, then I thought, okay, well, now I don't have to look for more stories about women or what or, or, or whatever. So I could, uh, yeah, so I, I don't, I, you know, I thought I, and I I just wanted to also cover it in geographical area, like the main parts, the Elephant Hill fire and the fires around Williams Lake and Risky Creek were kind of the main ones that I focused on. So that was another way of, I guess, putting some kind of limit on it. And although people in Vancouver and lower, lower mainland also suffered, I didn't go into that. I mean, there were people who suffered from, you know, emphysema and all kinds of things because of the smoke that went down to the coast but um i just decided to keep it in the act with active where the active fires were so i don't think i had too many stories maybe there were some that you know dropped out sometimes stories dropped out because i couldn't get enough information on them um like i'd hear about a story i remember i did hear about a story of in the area of williams lake where um there was a small community the police had gone in and, and said, uh, you know, you have to evacuate. Most of the community did evacuate. About three families were left behind. Things got, you know, a lot worse. And so the police said, oh, God, we have to go in again. They came in by by helicopter uh, to tell those people they didn't want to drive in. They came in by helicopter and just landed and said, look, you've got to get out. I mean, the fire is, you know, imminent. And the people finally left. And I thought that was interesting because it showed how much persistence was sometimes needed to get people out of dangerous situations. But I couldn't get enough information about it. Um, It was just a kind of story that floated around. And when I contacted like even RCMP media, they couldn't really help. I mean, probably something along those lines happened, but, um, you know, I couldn't get I couldn't get data. So, yeah, that's that was a story that kind of fell out. (laughs) Yeah. When you were talking about Ryan and you mentioned that he uh, ended up having COPD from from the fires, have you kept in touch with a lot of the folks that you chatted with? 
Well, yeah, I've kept in touch with them. They became quite, you know, I became quite friendly with him, uh, you know, with, with some with some of them and I uh, sort of want to follow their life story and how they, you know, and I did follow up too because I wondered there were people who really suffered emotionally from the fires and I kind of wanted to know how that went. And it's difficult. It's still difficult. I mean, the last, with some of these people, the last time I talked to them, I said they'd still get triggered you know, if a helicopter was flying overhead, because helicopters were, well, there, there was a, a family in, in Clinton, a ranching family, and uh, they had had a lot of trouble because of a, a backburn that was actually set by BC Wildfire Service uh, in order that what they had wanted to do was to prevent the fire from crossing the highway, and it didn't work, and the fire crossed the highway. And so the, those helicopters, you know, which set a fire, um, really, you know, that was a tr very triggering for them. And so now, even if a helicopter is perfectly benign, just someone, you know, flying overhead for not particularly any bad reason or anything, they would, you know, that, that would bother them. So those effects, I don't know how long that's going to last, but, um, you know, there's still, there's still, you know, that kind of emotional um effect on people and um yeah so that that'll take a while to to uh, disappear and i know even like a year or two after the fires like kids had um i was talking to um a woman who worked in child welfare and she said that there were lots of kids who had a lot of difficulty being separated from their parents now because they had been separated from their parents during the fires, I mean, maybe some, you know, part of the family is here and another part happens to be there and there's an evacuation order and so they can't see each other. And I mean, kids are pretty resilient and they may get over this, but for a while it was difficult for them to, you know, to separate from their parents because of what had happened before when they got separated. And then it was, you know, more of a separation than anybody recognized. Yeah. 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 I think maybe we don't think of that sometimes, the lingering trauma of those of those events and how you can rebuild homes and all those things, but you know, nothing will really erase the memory of that experience. Mm -hmm. That's right. That's right. And people up here are not necessarily going to run to therapists, right? And they're probably, if they wanted to, they're probably not a lot of therapists around, you know, but um, so, so they're not, and they're, you know, they feel, oh, you should, you should be able to, you know, tough it out or whatever and so I think I mean there was another thing that was very curious I think after the fires that one of the one of the people I became quite friendly with told me he said that there was a lot of domestic abuse following you know in the in the in the time following the fires um, people were uh, there were lots more calls and, and incidents and so on there were stories in the local papers about that and it could be partly because you know people lost income um, or they lost maybe you know, for a longer period of time, it wasn't necessarily just them, you know, they may have lost their job or may have um, had impacts to their business. And of course, I mean, we're still, I mean, it's quite a, you know, a lot of this trauma. I mean, I'm kind of worried about some of these people in the, you know, in the COVID times, like, you know, in the fires, tourism um, businesses suffered a lot because people didn't come up in the fires. And then there's COVID and they suffer a lot. And so there's a lot of this kind of, you know, a lot of these things coming at people. And so it makes it a bit difficult, I think, to to recover from. Yeah. Does it seem like the communities are, are stronger for like, despite what you've said, does it seem like that that it, the way they came together has carried since the since the fires? Well, I think it ha that, too, is a memory that 
that carries forward, you know, that that, that feeling of, of community. You know, I, I remember talking to uh, Sven Nielsen, he's the head of the RCMP here, here in 100 Mile. And at the time he said, I talked to him, I guess a few months after the fires and he said, he, you know, he didn't by any means want the fires to come back. I mean, there was clear, he didn't want the fires to come back, but he did miss the feeling of camaraderie that everybody had and the sense of, you know, kind of working together. And um, he, police are not always beloved in their communities, you know, and, but he, there, you know, people at that time, people were very glad the RCMP was around to make, you know, do certain things and, and you know, keep order and whatnot. And so um, they were, there was this, you know, feeling we're all together, we're all of this together. And, and so he missed that. And I think other people too. Yeah. Thanks so much to Claudia for being on Writing the Coast. And thanks to you, as always, for listening and subscribing. If you would like to learn more about the BC and Yukon Book Prizes, don't forget to visit our website, bcyukonbookprizes.com. On our website, you'll find all the information about our finalists, as well as details about upcoming events, like our storied series. Next time on Writing the Coast, you'll hear my conversation with Michelle Good, whose book, Five Little Indians is a finalist for the 2021 Ethel Wilson Fiction Prize, as well as the 2021 Jim Diva Prize for writing that provokes. Thanks for listening to Writing the Coast.